0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Okay, Hebrews 1, verses 5 through 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I don't know about you, but I am sometimes a very slow learner. Anybody like that? Uh, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, things that I really should know about the Bible. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that's taken me a very long time in my Christian journey to figure out is what do you do with the Old Testament? Have you ever, have you ever felt that way? You're just really confused about the whole point of the Old Testament? Um, and, you know, you read through a lot of the Old Testament, and honestly, it is can be quite confusing and bewildering. Um, and of course, there's lots of good stories in the in the, in the Old Testament, and um, and we you know we like to tell these stories to our children. Um, it's, it's interesting the stories we tell, uh, things like of course Noah and the Ark, destroying the whole entire world, Moses parting the Red Sea and drowning the Egyptians, um, Joshua's defeat at Jericho and the total annihilation of a city, um, things like David's defeat of Goliath. Uh, and, and like when I was a kid, maybe you're kind of in my generation, when I was a kid, children's Bibles weren't kind of like the ones now where they have these little poofy pictures of little colorful giraffes. And, you know, in my day, you like, I remember my children's Bible had this picture of David with the head of Goliath, blood dripping, like that's real children's Bibles, you know. Why don't we print those anymore? Uh <laughs> You know, these the stories are interesting uh, for four-year-olds. Um, uh, and, and, and kind of on beyond that, you know, the way we think about these stories, how do, how do we apply these stories to our life, right? And maybe you read through the Bible and you, want, you know, want the Bible to be relevant, you want it to speak into your life. So you read stories like the one where um, Samson, I love Samson, lots of heroic feats, guy should have been in the Olympics, he would have like won everything he entered, right? And one of my favorite stories is when uh, he is, he's pledged to be married to his uh, Philistine girlfriend. And um, uh, there's some issues around the whole wedding ceremony. And he kind of kills some people, causes problems with uh, relationships with the family. Um, but he goes back a few days later to actually retrieve his wife and come to find out his father-in-law has given her to another guy, right? So he is super angry, and, and maybe rightfully so, um, and so he goes out and he catches, which is impressive, he catches 300 foxes. Have you ever tried to catch a fox? I mean, I'm thinking to catch one fox would be impressive. He catches 300 foxes, ties their tails together, also impressive, um, <laughs> with, a, with a torch in the middle and turns them loose in the uh, almost ready-to-harvest wheat fields in that region and torches probably hundreds if not thousands of acres of wheat, right? Um, okay, like, how do you apply that in your life? <laughs> like, next time somebody gets on the wrong side of me, I'm torching their fields, right? I mean, those are good Sunday school illustrations. Somebody's, you sc- somebody's bullying you at school, you just burn their house down, right? Clearly what the Bible's teaching, right? Maybe not, maybe not, right? And, and so from the crazy laws and customs in Leviticus up through the laments of Jeremiah and the prophets, it can be really confusing, and we may feel, uh, and, and I've talked to a lot of people who just feel like, it's better off just to avoid the Old Testament, right? You just just don't go there. Um, in fact, some people, it's like, why do, we even, why do we even have both the Old and New Testament? It just makes the Bible really heavy. It would be a lot lighter we just whack off the Old Testament, just carry around the New, because we don't get it anyway. And so, just keep a safe distance from that Old Testament stuff. Um, as we've been looking through, uh, through Hebrews 1-4, through 4, the author of Hebrews makes it clear that that's actually a bad idea. And he, uh, he roots uh, the work and person of Jesus clearly in the Old Testament. And we'll see this uh, as we go through the book of Hebrews. He does an amazing job of, of showing why the Old Testament matters. Um, and in Hebrews 1-4, uh, through 4, we saw already, it said, Long ago, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken in his Son. right? And so clearly, uh, he, he holds and values both. But, but he does bring up the point that Jesus is better revelation. And we spent the last several weeks looking at those first four verses where it shows that Jesus, brings, he got, Jesus is God speaking to us. Right? He revealed God, the Father reveals to us himself in the most extreme and perfect way, most complete and final way, in the person and the works and the, 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 the deeds and the very being of Jesus. All that he said, all that he did, uh, all that he is reveals the Father. Um, uh, so it would be, it would be <coughs> tempting to say, well, if Jesus is the better revelation, if he's like the upgrade, we all know how this works when our phone gets an upgrade, right? What happens to the old operating system when the, when the new one gets uploaded? Right, it gets deleted, right? And so sometimes we we would be tempting to think, well, with Jesus now, the the prophets are no longer relevant or necessary. We can delete that because we now have a better, newer operating system. Uh, We don't need the Old Testament. Um, But actually, the the writer shows, the author of of Hebrews shows that that all of the Old Testament is is significant uh, and how Jesus is indeed the ultimate superior revelation uh, but he does it in a way that does not trash the Old Testament, but actually builds on it. Right? He is the fulfillment and completion of the Old. Um, and so in this, uh, we will see that he, he's continuing to present Jesus as a superior revelation. But he's going to do it in a way that helps us see how to read and understand the Old Testament. So my goal for today is kind of two things. One, to see how the message Jesus proclaimed and lived is far better than the prophets and, as we will see today, even than the message of the angels. But also to see that uh, that Jesus is the complete and final revelation, if you will, the missing piece of the puzzle that makes the entire Bible make sense. So I hope by the end of this you will have some tools to, to better read and, and grasp and understand the Old Testament. Because uh, if you're like me, this is probably an area that that we don't, we don't always do really well. Uh, so the context here is Jesus. Uh, th- this passage 5 through 14, the author is comparing Jesus to angels. Um, now, some commentators have speculated that maybe the, the audience that he was writing to were worshiping angels, but to do that really misses the whole point and context of what the author is talking about here. What he's talking about here is Revelation. And he's talking about Jesus as superior revelation, first of all, to the Old Testament prophets. But here he's going to compare them to the, the angels. And uh, through, throughout the Old Testament, angels were often dispatched as messengers of God. And uh, Moses and others had uh, appearances by angelic beings who showed up and communicated, who revealed God's message and truth uh, to them. And so... Uh, What he's talking about here is Jesus is superior to the angels and consequently his revelation is also superior. It's better um, and and more reliable. Now, I'm not going to get too bogged down in this, but it's helpful to understand how this passage breaks down. Um, And this, this passage is essentially seven quotations from the Old Testament. So he takes uh, primarily from the Psalms, Five of them are from, from the Psalms, one from Samuel, and one from uh, Deuteronomy, and he just strings these together. But he's very strategic in the way he does it, and he uses a, a, a very common uh, literary device that's used throughout the Old Testament in Hebrew called a chiastic structure, or a chi, chi, chiism. I can never say the word right. Chiastic structure, we'll stick with that one. Uh, what, is it, what is a chiastic structure? Well, it's, a form of Hebrew parallelism where the first line of a, of a poem and the last line are parallel, right? And then you have like middle lines that stack at parallel. So you can see in this verse 5, is actually parallel to, verse thir- parallel to verse 13. And they both say the same thing. They both say the Son is a king, right? They exalt or show the status of the Son as a king. Then the next two lines, uh, verses 6 and 7 and, and verse 10 through 12, are also parallel. And they look at the Son as God. And then the, the middle, which is always going to be the, the emphasis or the focus of a passage in, in this kind of outline, is verses 8 and 9 that shows the Son as both God and King. All right, so, so that helps us kind of understand that the author has arranged these quotes in a very specific and strategic way to make a point. And what do you think his point is? Right, that the son is both God and King. You got it. You guys are brilliant. Way to go! Uh, so let's let's briefly look through that. Uh, we will kind of look these one by one, but but I'm going to just survey them. Uh, you can go back and look at them further and, and see how it portrays this. But first uh, line, the son is King. Right. So verses five and also verse thirteen. Verse five says this: To which of the angels did God ever say, "You are my son, today I have begotten you"? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So it's the language of a father and a son describing uh, Jesus' status or position or relationship to God the Father as God the Son. Um, and we see in verse 13 he says similarly, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That doesn't actually use the term king in either of those verses, so you might be going, okay, I don't get it. Uh, but both of these are language of, of an heir. And not just an heir in general, but an heir to the throne. Uh, uh, verse 13 comes from Psalm 110, which is very much a coronation psalm. And it speaks of one ascending to the throne. Uh, he is told to sit at my right hand, and that is the place of rule, of authority, of his throne until he makes his enemies a footstool, which means to have dominion and power over everything. Uh, likewise, it is, as we saw last week, it's very Trinitarian language. God the Father and God the Son. It says that the Son is begotten of the Father. It um, doesn't mean that Jesus was born, that at some time God had a wife way back and they had children. No, it means that they're begotten. It means they're the same nature, right? They're the same DNA. They're the same divine character and nature, but as we talked about last week, they're also distinct, two separate beings, two separate persons, father and son. Uh, the father calls him son, right? He appoints him, he designates him as son. So they are distinct and separate persons. Uh, and it's the son who sits on the throne, who rules, right? Who uh, is, is is bringing all his own, his enemies, every power, every principality under his rule and authority. Uh, now, uh, these passages. Uh, the the author it's important to know that the author is not inventing christian theology here okay he picked these passages because for the jewish people they were what were known as messianic in other words uh before the time of, of, of jesus and even during jesus time they would have read these and understood them as pointing to a promised king who was coming um and and uh they, they saw that, that David and David's descendants up to that time had not fulfilled these prophecies. But they spoke about somebody that Jesus, uh, that David didn't qualify for and neither did any of his children. And so they, they understood that there was a greater one coming, a Messiah, a promised one, literally is what it means, an anointed one, who would come and who would sit on David's throne and who would rule his people. Um, and of course, we see that throughout Jesus' life that they, they, um, they want him to be the Messiah. In fact, Jesus is very careful about calling himself Messiah because they're all over this, right? They wanted a king, and they were looking forward to that. And, and it wasn't hard for Jesus to sell himself in that role. Um, but what's interesting is that for the, the, the Jews in Jesus' day, they didn't necessarily think about the Messiah as being God, Right? For, for them, the Messiah was a very human figure. He was an heir of David. He was human. He wasn't God incarnate. Okay? That was kind of out of the box for them. And in fact, that's why Jesus had so many problems. Right? They loved it when he presented himself in a way that was messianic. In fact, sometimes they, they tried to force him into that role and to make him king, and Jesus wouldn't have anything to do with it. Right? Uh, so why did they kill him? Well, they didn't kill him because he claimed to be a king or Messianic. Their problem was what? Well, when we came to the second point, they, their problem was when he claimed to be God. Right? Because all of a sudden, that was a new category for them, and it, it was way outside of the box, and they saw it as what? As blasphemous. Right? No, no, you can't, you can't claim to be God. And so they had a problem with that. So the author shows, and he goes to the second uh, lines of, 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 um, of text here, the Son is God. Okay? He's also God. Um, uh, and, and again, he uses Old Testament scripture to support this. Right? He's showing that the Old Testament pointed to J- Jesus as king, but also pointed to him as, as a, a coming one who was divine. Uh, and he quotes uh, a couple more passages. Um, and he says in verse 6, he says... Uh, uh, again, when he, that is God, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Um, by the way, this is most likely not speaking of Jesus' birth in, in Nazareth. Okay, The context and the setting here is really focused on the throne, on Jesus' ascension and return to heaven after the resurrection when he sits at the right hand of majesty, it says in verse 4. Uh, and the word that's used here for world is not the, the common use for world. It's a, it's, it's a different word. And it really is, is, is speaking of when Jesus came back home, right? When he came and he was seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne of majesty on high when he's resurrected. And at that point in time, he says the angels are to bow and worship him. Um A little bit later in chapter 2, we'll see that for a while, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, speaking of his coming and taking on human flesh. But here, he's ascended, he's uh, now seated in the place of of authority and power, and the angels are to worship him. Who deserves worship alone? God, right? God alone. Through all of Scripture, there's no place where anybody is ever encouraged to worship anybody, anything other than God alone. And so here... God Himself is saying, Let let God's angels worship Him. All right? It's a a claim to deity. Uh, Then in verse 10, He says, and again, this is a parallel, down in verse 10 through 12, He says, uh, And again, God is speaking, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up, and like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. All kind of language here that points to to this person coming as being God. First of all, God himself calls him Lord. And in the the Old Testament text, this would have been the word Yahweh, uh, the divine name of God. And so he gives him that name. Uh, He is identified again as the as the creator of the universe, the one who laid the foundation, who uh, the heavens is his handiwork, uh, repeating what he's already said earlier. Uh, this is a creator. Uh, he, he is eternal in his nature. And he uses these amazing pictures that the universe is going to wear out. Um, basically, what he says here is the universe is running on batteries and there's no charge cord, <laughs> Do so you hate that what happens when you get out your phone and your phone's dead? It says little things flashing 3% and you're out somewhere and you have no charge cord. And what's going to happen? The world's going to end because your phone's going to die, right? Well, he says that's what's happening to our universe, right? The battery is wearing out. It's down in that little red zone now and we're running out of battery and there is no charge cord. Everything in this universe Uh, And science will confirm this, right? Everything in the universe is running out of steam, right? There's there's no gas station. There's no charge cord, right? But he remains. Praise God. Jesus does not need a charge cord, right? He does not run on batteries that will wear out. He is eternal. Uh, The other picture, he says, says, uh, the universe is like garments that are rolled up, right? And this is a picture of, of a person changing their clothes, Uh, You take your your garments off, and if you're like me, you just wad them up and throw them on the floor, and your wife yells at you. That's not really true. My wife doesn't yell at me, and I learned the hard way not to do that. So I take care of my clothes. What do I do? I fold them up. I put them in the right dirty clothes box, right? They're rolled up, and you put on clean ones. He says the universe is going to be changed, but he is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You and I are continually changing. In some ways, hopefully for the better, in some ways maybe not for the better. I think, in general, I'm getting wiser, On some days anyway. Uh, Life experience is teaching me um, how to be smarter, Um, so in some ways I'm improving. At the same time, I'm falling apart. This morning, man, I could not, I don't know why, I could not hear anything. I I still, I'm losing my hearing, I'm losing my vision, I can't read. we, we, we are changing, uh, but Jesus is unchanging. Uh, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, those are all attributes and characteristics of God alone. Eternal, unchanging, creator, Lord of all. Right? And, and God himself describes this coming one in those terms. So, of course, we come to the center, the, 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 the main point, Uh, the center of the chiasm, the structure, he's both, right? He's both king and God. And he, again, quotes more scripture from Psalms to, to say that. He says, the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, speaking of their transitory, temporary nature. But at the sun, he says, your throne, okay, there's king language, right? Your throne, O God, there's divine language, are forever, And it's interesting that it's God here speaking of the Son, naming Him God. God the Father calls God, the Son, God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So he's talking about this one who will rule as Son, who is king, and He is God. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Uh, you gotta w- check the punctuation in your bible it may not be correct right and there's dispute and debate on how to actually translate is he saying therefore god your god has anointed you or is he saying therefore god jesus your god the father has anointed you i think it's sec- i think it's option b right he's saying no god jesus your god the father has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions right so what the author does here is he's identifying that the Old Testament has evidence and support that points to Jesus in two important roles that are combined together as king who fulfills the promise of, uh, of the messianic promise for one who would sit on David's throne, and at the same time, one who is God incarnate, who is, who is divine, who shares in every way the full nature and character of God himself who is, as he said in verse 3, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, and here we see this picture of Jesus not only as a part of the Trinity, but as, as the incarnate God, fully God, fully man. The human side, uh, the King David, uh, he, David's heir, the divine side, uh, the living God. Uh, unchanging, right? Uh, We live in a world that is full of chaos and political confusion and injustice. And I don't know about you, but I look forward to the day when Jesus returns uh, as King, who is God, who will bring every power, every enemy under his control and dominion. And all the silly stuff in this world will be rolled up like a garment and thrown in the dirty clothes. And things will be changed, right? Things will come new. Um, And the point of all this is that Jesus is better than the angels. And he summarizes it in verse 14 this way. Are they not all, that is angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So he puts this picture of Jesus high on the throne, right? The king, ruler over heaven and earth, the eternal God. He says, how could you compare him to angels who are servants, They're household slaves, right? They're standing around waiting for orders. And they are at Jesus the king's disposal. And he dispatches them to us, the recipients and, and those who are inheriting his salvation, as servants of the gospel, right? As servants of his greater salvation and revelation that we celebrate this morning as we take communion. Um And and, and by the way, he, he says that this salvation is future, right? Those who are waiting for salvation. So there's a sense in which we are saved already. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus, our relationship with him is reconciled, then we have eternal life. But there's more to come, right? And part of our salvation is future, when Jesus will come and he will give all of his kingdom and all of its benefits and we will live with him forever, um, so, so that's what he's talking about here, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation. And because he is superior to the angels, so his revelation is superior to anything any angel ever spoke. Right. So, so today, if uh, on the way to church I got abducted by an angel and he kidnapped my body, and actually there's an angel standing before you right now, It's not, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Um, An angel cannot tell you anything greater or better or more significant than what Jesus has already revealed through his life and work and ministry. Jesus is the ultimate revelation. Um, And and that's what his point here is. is That Jesus is is the greater revelation. So back to our original question, that's, that's, that's who Jesus is, and that's why his revelation is better. It's better because he is God. He's the king who was sent to this earth. He was the one who will rule. So therefore, everything about what Jesus says and does and is must be better. But back to the original question, does that mean we can now chuck the Old Testament? Um, that it's now meaningless and pointless because we've got a better version. Uh, that was kind of a rough draft. Now we've got the final draft in Jesus, so we can just get rid of the Old Testament. Um, well, the author of Hebrews would absolutely say no. right? And, and the way this whole passage breaks out reinforces that because the whole thing is almost word for word quotes out of the Old Testament. He's not chucking the Old Testament. In fact, he's using the Old Testament. He's using the revelation of the prophets and the angels to explain to us who Jesus is and to make clear... Um, with biblical authority, that Jesus was the plan all along. Um, And so in that sense, uh, Jesus is not a different revelation or really not even a better revelation. Uh, A more accurate way to describe it is that Jesus is the culmination of revelation. I like that because it rhymes. The culmination of revelation. Everybody say that, the culmination of revelation. We could make like a rap or something if I was... A rapper, I would try that, but I'm not. I'm not going to go there. So you're safe. Um, he, he is not just an upgrade. He's he's the culmination of it. And what's culmination? Well, uh, it could be defined this way: if an event or a series of events culminates in something, it ends with it, having developed it until it reaches this point. That's what culmination is. It's something that's brought along until it reaches its climax or pinnacle. In its, its culmination, in its fulfillment, in everything that it brought you up to the point of, it ends there. That's just a great picture of what Jesus is. right? He's the culmination of the Old Testament revelation of the angels and the prophets. Right? It all culminates in Jesus. It all ends with Him having developed the revelation of God uh, progressively throughout the Old Testament until it reaches its pinnacle in Jesus. So for that reason, Jesus doesn't replace a single word of Old Testament revelation. There's nothing in the Old Testament that we chuck or cut out of our Bible because Jesus somehow replaces it. But he does culminate all of it. Um, And the truth is we can really uh, only understand the Old Testament when we understand it by means of the revelation of Jesus. So here's a a cool thing. The Old Testament helps us understand who Jesus is. It helps authenticate that that he is God's plan from the beginning. Uh, Here, the author uses it to verify that, that, that Jesus is both Messiah and God. The Old Testament confirms and verifies those truths. But the crazy thing is this, that we really don't understand the Old Testament. We really can't get it until we look at it through the eyes of Jesus' revelation. Um, kind of like uh, if you you can imagine that we we must look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel, right, the lens of Jesus. Uh, I struggle with how to uh, illustrate this, so I've come up with two good movies that maybe I hope you've seen that will help you understand this. Um, First one, National Treasure. Anybody seen National Treasure? Kind of an older movie. Um, Probably most of the movies that I know are older movies. Um, Great movie where this guy gets this treasure map, and he's trying, he's in search of this great treasure, right? And he's got the map, but the map is is not leading him to the right place. And uh, finally, after some clues and some uh, mishaps, he, he, he finds this pair of special glasses. Right? He puts on these cosmic glasses, and when he looks through these glasses, all of a sudden, things appear on the map that he never saw before that make it clear, right, that explain the the... Uh, the answers that he needs to understand and read the map. Okay, the gospel is like that for the Old Testament, right? And if you don't look at the go- at the Old Testament through with the lens of the gospel, you cannot really understand the full and final message of what it's explaining and teaching. Because Jesus is the culmination of that revelation, right? So the only way you'll, it will make sense to you is if you understand it, all of it through the lens of the gospel, through through what Jesus did and who he is. Another movie, though, that I think explains it even better. Uh, how many of you have seen the movie The Others? Even probably an older movie, The Others, old movie. So if you're young, maybe you need to see this movie, but I'm going to wreck the whole movie for you right now because I'm going to tell you the, the plot twist. So if you want to watch the movie, plug your ears, right? So in, in, in this movie, uh, it's this great story of this mom and her two children who are living during the time of World War I, and her husband has gone up to fight at World War I in, in the battle, and she's waiting for him to come home, and it's taking forever, like forever. Okay, key words there. Long, long time. Uh, and he's not coming home, and they're trying to struggle and survive in this house. And during this time period, their house is invaded by ghosts. And these ghosts come and are harassing them and giving them a hard time. And they're terrified of these ghosts and they're trying to figure out how to get rid of the ghosts. And so the whole movie kind of goes through this whole adventure with this poor mom and her two children being you know, alone. And, and um, at one point the, the husband actually does show up and he's like bleeding and he's like weird. And he, like, he's there for one night and then he's gone. And you're like, what in the world is going on here, right? Um, But then the plot twist comes. At the end of the movie, you realize that the mom and the two kids are the ghosts, right? And that the other people were actually real life living people. And they were the ones who were the ghosts who were terrifying the real real people. And through most of the movie, the house is enshrouded in a huge cloud of fog, right? Why? Well, because it's not real, right? And you find out. And so what happens is... um, when when the plot twist comes and you realize who the real people are and who the real ghosts are, all of a sudden the fog lifts and it's all clear. Everything is clear. And all of a sudden you start going back, playing through the scenes of the movie like the weird husband. And you're like, oh my, I get it now. He's dead, right? He's a ghost. right? And he shows up because uh, he's not really looking for them. He's just wandering through death, right? And you're like, wow, I get it. And, And scene after scene after scene, all of a sudden just comes to light because it's like, oh, I get it, there the ghost, right? Now you need to watch the movie, and I'm sorry I wrecked it for you, right? Um, that, that's how it is with the Old Testament, right? We can read through the Old Testament, and it's it's a good story, and it makes sense, and there's David and Goliath, and there's, you know, killing each other off, and all that kind of cool stuff, but, like, you don't really get it until you see what it means through the cross, and through the fulfillment of Jesus. Um, And one of the problems with us as we look at the Old Testament is we are trying to interpret and understand the Old Testament without the lens of Jesus. Um, And and so my challenge to you is, as you go home, to start taking some Old Testament stories and passages, ones that you like, and try this, okay? Try interpreting the Old Testament... um, through the lens of the gospel. Now, there's two things you gotta, two errors you must avoid as you do this. Okay? And this is why we get in trouble understanding the Old Testament. First error is this. We uh, ignore the original context and meaning. Okay? The author of Hebrews tells us that long ago, God spoke to us through prophets. Right? And what he spoke to them was a message that was real and meant something to those first people. Don't ignore that. Right. So, for example... Uh, Samson and the whole fox thing like this is where people get in trouble they skip the point of the original author to the original audience and the context of what was going on there and the whole history of Israel and uh, taking over the promised land and the Philistines they skip all that part and they just go, they just see this well, uh, you know Samson was wronged and he took revenge amen I'm going to apply that, right? next time somebody cuts me off I'm ramming them with my car, right? (laughs) Right? Somebody makes somebody cheats me. I'm going to burn their house down because that's what the Bible says to do. Right? Okay, that that would be failing to understand the original message. Okay, don't do that. Take the time as you study the Old Testament to understand what was going on in that context and the message that uh, that that was being communicated there. Um, but then there's a second problem, and that is when we. Uh, only interpret the Old Testament through its Old Testament con- uh, lens and context, and we fail to see it through the work of Jesus, through the lens of the gospel. Um, so take, for example, David and Goliath. Uh, great story. We love that story, right? And uh, we tell it in Sunday school, and it, it's, it's a good story. But what's the point of that story? Well, if we do our homework and we, we look at the original context and its, its history, Um, uh, this story is not telling everybody to just go out and, like, attack big people, (laughs) right? Uh, The kind of key verse of the story is in verse 26 of Samuel 17, where it says, And David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine, and, get this, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Right? So the point of the story here is that there's a guy out there who is bringing dishonor to God's name. by He's a reproach to Israel because he's mocking Israel and by doing so he's mocking God. And the point of this is that that's a bad thing. And we're not going to let people defame God's name. And that Israel as a nation should, should do everything possible to see the name and glory of God exalted. Right? That would be the local... Old Testament context. Um, and if we stop there, that would be an okay lesson. Um, um, but, but that's missing the the real, even deeper point than that. Okay, Now let's look at that story through the lens of the gospel. When we put on the gospel lens, uh, we see that this is not just about dealing with giants in our life. And I've heard this you know applied this way, that this story is about living by faith, and, uh, you know, you all have giants in your life. And you go, I have giants in my life. Any of you have giants in your life? Problems, obstacles, right? And, and it gets preached this way. You need to be like David. And you need to go out with your sling. And you need to attack those giants. And you need to slay those giants and deal with those problems because God's going to help you. Have you ever heard that preached that way? Hey, where's Jesus in all that? There's no Jesus there, Right? But when we look through the gospel lens, we see that this story is ultimately not about you conquering giants. Because here's the thing, <laughs> you go out there and you fight the giant, you're liable to just get squashed. Right? Um, and I've tried that. I've been squashed by too many giants. And the thing is, I can't defeat them myself. Right? If this is really about Jesus, David is a picture of who? Me? Or Jesus? Jesus, right? It's, it's, a, it's a shadow, it's a type, it's a picture of Jesus. And the, the story, when we look at it through the gospel lens like this, is that we, I am I am the, the cowardly Israelite soldier who's hiding from Goliath. Okay, that would be me, right? Um, I'm going, I'm not fighting him, right? He'll kill people. Do he's, he's, you see that guy? He's huge. I'm not going out there. But Jesus does, right? Jesus is our David. Jesus is our hero who went out, and he did not go out in power. He did not go, go out with all the armor and armies of heaven. How did he go out to sl- slay the giant? In weakness, right? He slew the giant when he went to the cross and when he died. And he conquered death and rose again, right? Um, that gives the story whole new meaning right and and and, and that's the, the fuller deeper truer meaning of that story um, so so we need to interpret we need to see scripture through the lens of the gospel and I would encourage you to do that go home and try this and not only do we need to interpret it through the gospel but we need to apply it through the gospel one last Old Testament story as an illustration and then we'll close um, and you know, I, I, when you read through, and here's the problem. When you read through the Old Testament without this lens of the gospel, some of these stories seem harsh and unfair and ridiculous. right? So take, take the, the story of Moses when he strikes the rock. Remember the story we mentioned through Exodus? God told them they were out of water, and Moses cries to God, you know, we need water, and God says, okay, I want you to go... And I know last time you, you hit the rock. This time I want you to go and I want you to speak to the rock. right? So, But Moses is angry. He is, he is frustrated with the people. I think maybe he's frustrated with God. He's, he, he's not in a good place spiritually. And what does Moses do? He goes to the rock and in front of all the crowd, the whole nation of Israel is assembled. And does Moses speak to the rock? He does not speak to the rock. He speaks to the people and he says, Must I save you again? And he takes his staff and he hits the rock. Right? And in doing that, what does he do? Well, he disobeys God. But more than that, God later says, You dishonored me because you did not give glory to my name. Right? And what happens? Was, what's the consequence or penalty for Moses? He is disqualified from the promised land. And, and you know, uh, if if we see this and not through the gospel lens, what we can get the impression of it is that God is up there just waiting for you to mess up once. He's watching you. He's waiting, just waiting. When, you, when are you going to mess up? Because I know you're going to mess up. And when you do, man, I'm going to zap you. Right? I'm going to get you. And I'm going to make sure you don't, you don't get the, <laughs> the brownies at the end. Right? And, and unfortunately, that's how a lot of people see the Old Testament. But when we look through it, through, through the eyes of grace... The eyes of the Gospel, it's different, right? We see that this story is about Moses who was the deliverer, but Moses needed a deliverer, right? Even Moses, the great deliverer of Israel, needed to be delivered. He was fallen, he was weak, and it's a good reminder that for any of us, at any time, we can fall. And when we fall, the penalty... The wages of sin is death. You can be a Christian your whole life and you can in one second say one word that just devastates somebody. That dishonors the name of God. Uh, And and you are deserving of being disqualified from the prize. But we don't get the prize because we earn it. We don't get salvation because we deserve it. We get it how? By grace. And Moses... Uh, He didn't get the promised land on earth, but he did get the promised land, and later the author of Hebrews tells us that. He got the promised land, the eternal promised land, but he didn't get there by his own good deeds. He got there because he was totally undeserving, but he received grace. Um, Don't don't, uh, avoid the Old Testament, but... Learn to to read it and to meditate on it and reflect on it through the work, the, the ultimate, final uh, revelation. The culmination. There it is. The culmination of revelation. All right, let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand.